welcome to episode 51 of the In All Things podcast, a podcast where we host conversations about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I talked with Dr. Cornelius Plandinga about his new book on gratitude, why giving thanks is the key to our well-being. It is an exposition of the biblical call to give thanks, and whether you feel thankful at this particular moment or not, I think you will find that Dr. Planninga's joyful and gentle wisdom is contagious. As always, we thank you for tuning in. I'll start with two confessions. First, I am recovering from an illness, and perhaps you can hear that in my voice. Second, this is a podcast episode about gratitude, and I haven't been feeling particularly thankful these days. I'm not quite sure why this is the case. I have so many things to be thankful for. There sometimes seems to be a gap between the blessings I can count in my head and the gratitude I feel in my heart. Not long ago, I read a book called The Happiness Curve in which the author, Jonathan Rauch, explored why so many people across cultures and demographics seem to experience a slump in their 40s. One of the findings was that people in their 40s often know that they should feel thankful, but don't feel as thankful as they think they should feel. And so, not feeling thankful becomes one more thing to become dissatisfied with. At 42, I'm probably too early in the decade to judge if whether what I'm feeling is what Rauch is describing. But what did resonate with me was that sometimes I experience calls to gratitude as producing the opposite of their intended effect. Someone or something reminds me to be thankful, and I think, why am I not more thankful? The feeling of gratitude, after all, cannot be summoned by force of will. It's for this reason that I read Dr. Neil Planninga's book with great interest. In it, Dr. Planninga gently guides us away from gratitude as a practice of self-improvement and towards gratitude as a practice of attention, astonishment, and joy. I should say that my joy was magnified by being joined on this interview by my pastor, the Reverend Dr. Joel Koch, who was a student of Dr. Planninga in the 1980s, in this conversation, Joel and I talk with Dr. Planiga, learning from him about that elusive but essential virtue of gratitude. And to that conversation, we now turn. Well, I'm joined now by two guests. The first guest is a guest co-host, Dr. Joel Koch, who also happens to be my pastor at Covenant Christian Reformed Church here in Iowa. Joel, thanks so much for hosting with me. Thank you. I feel gratitude. <laughs> That's right, because our featured guest is Dr. Cornelius Planinga. He is the Senior Research Fellow at the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. He's President Emeritus of Calvin Seminary and the author of many books. Uh, but the most important one for the purposes of our conversation is this new book on gratitude. So Dr. Planinga, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Delighted to join you, Justin and Joel. So I wonder if you could start by telling us what inspired you to write a book 
about gratitude uh, at this moment in history and uh, what you mean by the subtitle, which says that giving thanks is the italicized the key to our well-being. Yeah, well, I've had my eye for years on um, Colossians 3, chapter that begins, since you have been raised with Christ, and goes on to say, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with, and then there are a list of virtues, uh, kindness, compassion, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love. And then three times in a row, Paul says, and be thankful. Hmm. Uh, sing with gratitude in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do it with thanks to God through Jesus Christ. And I said to myself, um, there's a reason why Paul says gratitude three times and the other virtues just once. And then uh, that got me interested in the biblical treatment of gratitude. And of course, I started to see it all over the place and uh, not the least in the Psalms, which um, appear to regard gratitude as a pretty urgent necessity. Mm. It's there not only when the psalmists say, uh, be thankful, but also when they praise God for God's goodness. That's functionally equivalent. Mm -hmm. So it's all over the place in the Bible, and it appears to be urgently recommended. And I wanted to look into why that might be so. And it turns out that... Um, in the providence of God, one of the reasons is that it is not only right and fitting for us to give thanks, it's also extremely helpful. It's, um, according to positive psychologists, the best predictor of general well-being hmm. giving thanks is. That's why the subtitle. So, uh, you know how publishers are. Sometimes they use subtitles that they think will catch people's eye. There's only one chapter that's um, about it being the key to our well-being, but yeah. it appears to be true. Yeah, let me ask you about that. Well, early in the, let me read, first read a quote from earlier in the book. You write, over the years, I've become interested in gratitude, what it is, how I get it, what keeps me from getting it, and what happens to me if I have it. Joy happens to me, contentment too, maybe also generosity towards others. Wonderfully, if I have generosity and gratitude, my relationships warm up a lot. And I love the way you wrote that passage because um, you use the language of joy and contentment as something that happens to us rather than something that we can conjure up by an act of will. Um, and yet there's also this side of it that you write about in this book where you write about things like writing in a gratitude journal, the practice of gratitude which actually right. makes us feel more grateful. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about the relationship between the spontaneity of feeling thankful uh, and the practice of cultivating gratitude. How do those two things relate, um, the practice of gratitude, but also the feeling of gratitude? Yeah, well, I think um, I use the word sense, that gratitude is a sense of mm. having been blessed and therefore indebted. Uh, to try to bridge over gratitude as a determination that I make mentally and gratitude as something that occurs to me um, largely through what I call gladness or uh, strong gladness, which is joy. Uh, I think that it's important to remember that in scripture and especially in the Pauline epistles, all the virtues are both God's gift 
and also our calling. Hmm. And nobody ever tries to tidy that up or sort it out, you know, which percentage is God's and which is mine. <laughs> no, uh, God gives us to be grateful and also calls us to practice gratitude. Whether or not we have actual gladness or strong gladness is not, I think, entirely ours to control. I think that's part of God's gift. And certainly a feeling of warmth toward the giver, that may be there or not. How do you define gratitude? Uh, Gratitude is the glad sense of having been gifted with something by somebody and therefore feeling obliged to that person. I wonder the sense of gratitude that is so universally recommended, as you said, by positive psychology as well. Do you think there's a sense of, um, you know, I'm, always, I'm thinking about the G.K. Chesterton quote where he says the the moment for the atheist when he feels profoundly thankful and has no one to thank. Uh, is that a sort of clue, perhaps, of yeah. the goodness of God? It is a clue uh, about the goodness of God. And in my reading of... Um, unbelievers on gratitude, I did find um, a couple who expressed frustration that they have nobody to thank for a sunset, Hmm. nobody to thank for a a seascape. And I think I get that. Uh, It it is to me enormously fulfilling uh, to breathe a prayer of gratitude to God when I see something in creation that I just love. Hmm. And I can imagine a sensitive, conscientious atheist feeling frustrated that, according to him, he has nobody to thank. Hmm. And as a matter of fact, I think that what the atheist feels then at seeing a sunset is closer to what you would call gladness than to gratitude, because Hmm. according to him, he has nobody to thank. I want to acknowledge the God and gift side of it and really feel grateful, Dr. Planninger and Neil, that you do do both the both the grace, but also our response. And so let me just pick up on the cultivating response part of gratitude here. And I do that by noting a connection with your previous book, Under the Wings of God, where in your good chapter about learning patience, you talk about finding someone to whom you look as an apprentice and learn patience. And then that turns out to be a theme in this book, too, you talk about learning to do gratitude is sort of like learning to play. In your case, you learned to play the violin. Um, you you had uh, a teacher to whom you were an apprentice. I'd just love to hear more thoughts about that. Who were some of the people to whom you were an apprentice? And when did you become conscious of how important it is to be an apprentice who's learning from others with virtues like this? I think um, that's a great question, Joel. I think that being an apprentice has, for me, been kind of a lifelong vocation. Uh, I was aware early on that I was um, dependent on my teachers, uh, early on that I was dependent on my violin teacher. So the idea to me that I learn important things from others was there very early. And I had a um, a wonderful mother. I made a very wise choice of mother. And uh, she, she was one of the most grateful people I have ever met. And she showed me, she modeled for me being grateful for all kinds of simple things. Grapes in the first week of October. Uh, now the season has come. We didn't have 
uh, grapes year around when I was a boy. They they showed up in the first week or so of October. And she would just uh, marvel that now we had these big, uh, juicy globe grapes. And her whole life was like that. Her gratitude for her children, for her husband, for her faith, for a, a sermon that moved her, for something good she read in C.S. Lewis. Uh, she, she was always pointing out how wonderful things were and how grateful we should be for them. So I got the idea in my home, and I am so thankful that that was the case. But I then started to notice as I uh, got more mature that people aren't all like that. Some people are very hard to please. Uh, almost nothing um, seems to satisfy them or even please them. And I just took note of that, that people are uneven in their uh, ability to be pleased and thankful. And then as I became um, theologically educated and started reading the Bible more deeply, I started to see uh, injunctions to give thanks all over the place and then got interested in Colossians 3 particularly uh, because there it appears that these virtues are part of our baptismal clothing. Um, we have been baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, and now we clothe ourselves after being baptized, not with a physical white robe, but with the virtues of Christ. And that, to me, is an inexpressibly beautiful idea. Good. Well, I think we're glad to hear what you learned from your mother and what you learned from Colossians, and just a little bit more on the Bible as a source for learning these things. I was appreciative of a brief remark you made about the disciple Peter when Jesus rose and he's speaking to the women and he says, tell the disciples and Peter. And you were able to bring out how that was Jesus reaffirming Peter, doing all kinds of good things that Peter could be grateful for. So you learned gratitude from the story of Peter. And that reminded me of Frederick Buechner learning gratitude for grace through the story of Jacob. That was such an important part of his biblical studies. And I wondered, were there other, any other biblical characters or biblical stories that played a central role in your development of gratitude? The one grateful leper who came back to thank Jesus. Hmm. Why is that story there? Because it was reprehensible that people healed by Jesus should not have shown him gratitude and that there was just one that did. Um, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector showing uh, counterfeit gratitude. God, I thank you that I am not like other men and not like this tax collector here. Uh, Self-righteousness masquerading as gratitude. Those are a couple of the stories that, along with the Peter story, that have gotten my attention over the years. Yeah, I love the fact that um, we've already begun to talk about the biblical conception of gratitude, perhaps as distinct from other forms of, of gratitude that we might find um, in the wider culture, which there's positive and negative things about that. Um, you've already noted that gratitude has been shown to be good for our health. It reduces stress. It lowers our blood pressure. It's the single best predictor for human well-being. But you also write about uh, what you call corrupted forms of gratitude, where gratitude becomes something like self-help or self-improvement. Yeah. And you quote um, the late writer, Barbara Ehrenreich. She says, it's possible to achieve 
the recommended levels of gratitude without spending a penny or uttering a word. All you have to do is generate within yourself the good feelings associated with gratitude and then bask in its warm, comforting glow. If there's any <laughs> loving involved in this, it's self-love. And yeah. I thought that was a really insightful caution about all of the you know popular commendations of gratitude. And so how would you sort of help us navigate between this tendency that we always have, especially in American culture, of always trying to optimize ourselves, always trying to improve ourselves. There's right. this great article in the New Yorker that I read, improving ourselves to death, you know, off of that that Postman yeah. book. And yeah. yeah, it has I have the sense that gratitude could become part of that. It could become a practice that I do to just make myself feel better. Uh, in, in which case it, as you said, is no longer directed towards a giver anymore. Right. Could you say more about that? Yeah. If you go into a general bookstore and ask about books on gratitude, they were they will all be in the self-help section. Hmm. Uh, you cultivate gratitude so you can sleep better. You cultivate gratitude so that your your mood will be sunnier. I regard that uh, aiming directly at gratitude's uh, benefits as a corruption. Uh, gratitude is the fitting response to gifts, and all gifts that are any good are not only the human giver's uh, presentation to us, but also God's. So uh, mm -hmm. to strive for gratitude just because it will lower my blood pressure <laughs> is uh, totally disrespectful to God, whose grace has provided the gift through some other human being, usually, and for whom uh, my thanks is only right and proper and fitting. But now it is not wrong for me to notice that if I do what's right and proper and fitting, I will also sleep better. It's okay mm. for me to notice that, not to aim directly at it, but to be aware of it. Anyhow, anything you do to try to try hard to sleep better doesn't work very well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You cannot sleep by an act of will. Uh, no. I can jump in with a question I hope doesn't put people to sleep. Um, I'll just pursue the, the sources a little bit that more. Might, that heard. might be the good thing, actually. That might be a good thing for them. You you'll, be so, you'll be so grateful to me when you fall asleep next uh, time. Yeah. I It'll be wonderful. Someone, um, is, someone is listening to this podcast to fall asleep right now. So uh, yeah. this actually might be the gift that they need to receive. So I'll proceed with this gift just again on, on sources because we've talked about the scriptures wonderfully. Wonderful to hear about your mother and some contemporary literature and sources. But let's talk about tradition, which for me, amazingly, tradition is a good word. I'm grateful for traditions. And I was grateful in your book to find both your gratitude to the Reformed tradition, calling on the Heidelberg Catechism, even the Canons of Dort, and yet also yeah. calling on other traditions as well. And I remember learning about the Trinity from you and the early church and things as traditions there. And I guess both generally, but also with respect to the Lord's Supper, particularly where you have a powerful statement that what Jesus is doing there, it's beyond what our mind can comprehend, but our heart can hang yeah. on to it in a wonderful way. So in terms of the traditions as a source for gratitude and especially regarding the Lord's Supper, what was the connection there between the Reformed tradition and other traditions? Were they competitors? Were they partners? Were they both? What's, what about traditions? 
as far as I know, and the two of you may know more about this than I, but as far as I know, um, every um, serious Christian tradition has Thanksgiving prominent in their celebration of the Eucharist. Uh, it's there in Paul, it's there in the Gospels that Jesus gave thanks. And it's striking to me uh, that on the night he was betrayed, he gave thanks under those circumstances. So deep in him was the habit of thanking God for the cup and for the bread that he did it even under those circumstances. Uh, I think Eucharist is very widely accompanied by Thanksgiving because the great prayer of Thanksgiving is an ecumenical gift to us all. Some form of a great prayer of Thanksgiving at Eucharist is very, very common in the Christian faith. So I don't think the Reformed tradition is an outlier at all. I think it joins the great tradition of Christianity by uh, offering prayers of Thanksgiving in the celebration of the Eucharist. And I love that uh, Eucharist includes the Greek word charis, which can mean both gift and gratitude. What what a wonderful word. And then just, if I may, Justin, just to continue a little bit more, I have, I have found that as I pastor with churches, sometimes Christian Reformed people or Reformed people, they're, they're shocked when they hear our own confessions or John Calvin talking about the Lord's Supper. They said, I didn't know we believed all that stuff about the Lord's Supper or experienced that stuff. And there too, I was wondering, did, did your yeah. first sense of that reverence was it coming through other sources or did you just go directly to Calvin or the Heidelberg Catechism or how'd that happen? Well, my, my first awareness that gratitude was important in the Reformed tradition uh, was the Heidelberg Catechism, but it is so prominent in John Calvin's writings. I think I say someplace in the book that Calvin has a reputation for being dour or austere, um, uh, uptight, but his thanksgiving to God for, um, for fruit, uh, for wine, um, you know, he was French and Swiss, so wine would definitely come to mind, is obvious and uh, full-throated. Full uh, I love that about him, that he thinks, you know, um, that we have not just apples, but also pears and and peaches because for no other reason than that God wishes to delight God's creatures. What a wonderful thought. And a wonderful tradition. Thank you. I wonder if I could redirect the conversation um, back towards something uh, as, as far as pastoral counsel for those of us who struggle to be grateful or to cultivate gratitude. And I'm asking this uh, because I recently read a book by Jonathan Rauch called The Happiness Curve. And it's a book about what he calls a midlife slump, not a midlife crisis, but a midlife slump. And it is uh, exploring why people who are in their 40s across all demographics, cultures, and everything like that tend to be less happy in their 40s than at other ages. And I'm 42. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in this. Uh, And one of the findings was related to gratitude that people in their 40s, when they get stuck in this midlife slump, it's because they've begun to achieve many of their goals, but it's not bringing the satisfaction 
or the gratitude that they thought it would be. So they sort of know that they should be more grateful than they are for all of the things that they have in their life. And yet this creates this sort of cycle of dissatisfaction where that's one more thing to feel dissatisfied about, um, if that makes sense. And you have a similar discussion in your book about this. And so I'm wondering what you would say to someone who's listening to this podcast. Maybe they're in their 40s, maybe not. And they think, okay, yes, I should be more, I should be more thankful. That's one more thing to do. One more thing I'm failing at. Uh, what sort of counsel would you offer to someone who hears the calling to gratitude as a burden rather than as, as a blessing? That's a great question. I'm not sure I have an apt response to it, but I have a couple of thoughts. One of them is that for many people, it was for me, the 40s are um, a little more difficult than some of the other decades. It's a time when you have not only um, your children and your spouse, if you're married, to be responsible for and to, but also often aged parents. And aged parents, especially if they are sick or shut in or needy, can require a great deal of time and thought and goodness just at a time when you are in your relation, other relationships and in your job, the busiest you have ever been. Hmm. I think there are people who are so busy, they are frantic. And gratitude is uphill work when you are frantic. So I think um, a life assessment at some point, what am I obligated to do that I don't really need to be obligated to do? What am I obsessing over? Why do I so seldom feel glad on a bluebird spring day? Mm -hmm. uh, a self-assessment may uncover some some responsibility some responsibilities I have taken that I don't actually have, or may uncover an obsession, or may recover uh, a prideful um, desire to do everything perfectly or a prideful desire to be hot stuff in my work. <clears throat> Those things are need to be a matter of, of prayer and of, of mortifying my old nature because they are getting in the way of one of the most important of the virtues we are called to, namely gratitude. And I think I'll stretch that personal development of this virtue and gratitude to the community, specifically to the church, because I was very grateful for a, a picture of gratitude that you tie to what you call a golden chain, that as we work on gratitude personally, it can spread to the church. And with permission, I'll read what I was one of my favorite paragraphs in the book, the end of chapter five, where you describe this golden chain. And I'm just saying, because a lot of us are struggling regarding church life now. How often do we start our letters the way the Apostle Paul starts his letters with gratitude for even a church, what's going on in Corinth? I thank God. How often do we thank God for the church these days? Well, maybe we'll help the church if we do. So I'll read this paragraph and then anything you add, Neil, would be wonderful. So uh, here's the golden chain. We're now in a position to see something wonderful. If I am grateful to God and to others, I give evidence of a healthy inner life. If I have a healthy inner life, I am strong enough to tell others how grateful I am for them. 
if they are fellow members of the church and if they do the same for still others, the church becomes unified and strong. If the church becomes unified and strong, it becomes a more powerful instrument of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of if the kingdom of God comes to its fullness, created life in concert with God reaches its climax. The first link in this golden chain is simple gratitude. So what if we start with gratitude for the church? Maybe that'll help. But any, I'd love your thoughts there. Yeah. Um, the day it occurred to me to write that paragraph, I had a tingle down my spine because I saw for the first time the connection between my simple thanksgiving and the full coming of the kingdom of God. I hadn't seen that chain before. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'd seen a few links in it, but I hadn't seen the whole thing. And uh, that's a wonderful, wonderful feature of how God has arranged the world, that this momentum, this um, cascade of uh, ripple effects can start so simply, and yet it is undeniably true. All of us who have had life in the church know of both the advantageous and the deleterious effects of having uh, people in a congregation who are big influencers. They they can make a church glad, or they can make a church um, uh, restless, uh, unhappy, uh, depressed. So our own ability to influence others and the church is, I think, a lot greater than we often suspect. The Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 passages of uh, Paul place the virtues, including gratitude, as part of the image of God or the renewal of the image of God. Uh, The image of God is social. The church is the analog to the Holy Trinity. It's um, superintendency in Genesis 1. Um, But in the Pauline epistles, As Calvin put it, uh, Paul shows us what had gone wrong by what now goes right. And what goes right is that the image of God is renewed in us in righteousness and holiness. And Paul gives us the virtues as his way of spelling out what he means by righteousness and holiness. So one of my favorite preachers, Lewis Meads, once said, if you are kind to a person who has been neglected, if you are gracious to a person who is annoying, if you are, two more examples, then you are like God. That that just absolutely pierced my heart to hear him say that, that every time you are kind, compassionate, humble, uh, every time you are uh, loving, generous, grateful, you are like God. That is a powerful thought to me. Yeah. that While you were saying that, it made me think of Romans 1. You know, you sort of have the reverse of the golden chain of, you know, exchanging the image of God. And there's that line, and neither were they thankful, you know, in 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 the middle in the middle of all that, so it's sort of the canary in the coal mine, perhaps. Um, right, gratitude. so that in ingratitude is kind of the bottom of the barrel. 
Well, we're uh, reading favorite passages. So I'm going to read mine, which is early in the book. And this is a section where you're talking about uh, what we have to be thankful for. And you know, you know, all of these sort of circumstantial things that we might thank, thank God for. But then you write, above all else, there are the dynamic works of God. God is a mighty creator whose love and imagination give us surging oceans, burbling streams, freshwater lakes with miles of sandy beach and quiet ponds on which migrating geese ski to a stop. God is also a determined redeemer who rescues Israel from Egypt, provides for her in the wilderness and delivers her to the promised land. In the New Testament, scripture's recital of the mighty acts of God centers on the work of Jesus Christ and most especially on his death and resurrection. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2.2 As the Apostles' Creed says, in him we have the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And then here's the line. You might say that the whole Christian life is a way of trying, however inadequately, to give thanks for these magnificent gifts. So that's my passage. I I don't know if you want to say anything else about it. That's Yeah, I think um, another thing I learned from my mother and have noticed in some of my friends, uh, a kind of awe on occasion in nature, in viewing creation, in listening to it, in seeing it, in tasting and touching it, is entirely fitting for a Christian. I I live in the woods, and if I sit on my deck, I can hear woodpeckers talking to each other by their pattern of taps. Uh, One will go tap, tap, and then another one will answer. And then the first one will do it four times and the other one will answer. I I listen for that in the summer. Um, I I think that's, I think you'd have to be numb not to be delighted by it. I'll read, I'll read one of my favorite passages. This is by GK Chesterton. Because children have a bounding vitality because they are in spirit fierce and free. They therefore want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. I wonder if by way of closing, if you could just share, uh, where do we begin? Uh, Where would you instruct us to start if we would like to begin leaning into the cultivation of gratitude as we are called to in scripture? What would be some of the first places to look, first places to start in terms of developing uh, this posture of gratitude that is fitting in response to grace? The first thing I would say is that the desire to be grateful is itself something to be thankful for. Hmm. There are a lot of people who don't give a rip Hmm. uh, or who think ingratitude or entitlement is uh, normal. But the desire to be grateful is itself something to be thankful for. And the first thing is to pray honestly and openly for a more grateful heart. 
we can do our journaling and we can do testifying and we can take certain steps that have been known by Christians and others for years to be helpful. But uh, God has to soften my heart. God has to make my heart uh, responsive to God and to God's mm -hmm. gifts. And so an earnest prayer for these things is, to me, the very first thing. And then we can try. Not, not all habits of uh, grateful people will work for everybody, but we can try some of the time-tested ones. Um, journaling, keeping a jar in which we deposit photos of things that remind us how well we were treated by God, by somebody. Um, testifying to each other. You know, some families have a habit of, at dinner, um, doing roses and thorns and what's the promise one? I can't remember. Um, twigs, maybe. But uh, recounting things that in that day that they are thankful for. All of these are wonderful practices and uh, they may help. But the first thing is having a grateful heart, and that requires some softening and tenderizing by our mm. gracious God. Well, we are grateful. Our guest has been Dr. Cornelius Planinga, and the book is Gratitude, published by Brazos. Uh, we are grateful for your ministry, for this book, and to you for joining us on the In All Things podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Joel. So here is a bonus piece of content uh, for those of you who are still listening. Uh, we've been having this conversation offline about some of the things going on in our country. And so I thought that I would uh, hit record again and ask Dr. Planinga after his years in ministry and leadership, um, you know, what, what are the things as he looks at the state of uh, Christianity, particularly in our country, that discourage you most? And what are the things that give you hope? I would say that the divisions among Christians. Um, we have traditionally had, of course, divisions between Protestants and Catholics and divisions between liberals and conservatives and so on. And uh, those have been with us for a long time and we've learned to navigate them. But the country is now bitterly divided politically and that's gotten into the church. So that, for example, during the COVID crisis, choices in individual congregations about whether to mask or not to mask, whether to meet or not to meet, whether to socially distance or not socially distance, became political. They became political so that if somebody wanted to mask, they were immediately thought to be, uh, must, they must be liberal, they must be Democrat. Mm -hmm. And if they were opposed to ma masking, they, they, they must be a Republican, they must be conservative. And that added a whole level of uh, trouble, uh, division, uh, strife to uh, navigating the COVID crisis. And that's just one example. Divisions in the church that follow political lines are uh, extremely depressing because, of course, uh, our faith commitment is supposed to be first. Uh, it's not fourth after our political commitment. So that's depressing to me. And of course, the, uh, the withering of the church in many places where fewer and fewer people seem to find church important to them, that's concerning to me. But what I come back to again and again is that the church belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. 
the church has been through all kinds of trials and, uh, and depressing um, periods in its life before. It's taken many forms. It's been persecuted. It's been thought to be passe. Uh, all kinds of stuff has happened to the church. But the church uh, persists because the church belongs to Jesus Christ. And one day he will restore the church to its blessed fullness in the coming of the kingdom. And I refuse to let trouble or uh, division in the church blind me to this all-important fact. Amen. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content helpful, please help us out by leaving a review or sharing this podcast with others. Thanks again for tuning in.